Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast, season one, episode number two, titled Life in the Black Sea, which admittedly is not that exciting of a name for an episode. So I'm going to try and spice it up next week or in the future. Um, but yeah, this one's uh, maybe not great, but we'll get better. This is Josh Hirschman, and we are here to continue our journey through barbarian history with our story of the Goths. We'll be looking into the Goths' life on the Pontic Steppe with their growing sense of community and power in the region. And if you check out our Facebook page for the uh, History of the Barbarians podcast, I'll try and add some maps to give you a little visual reference to what we're talking about here. When we last left the Goths, they were living north of the Danube, stretching their influence across the Pontic Steppe of modern-day Ukraine, Russia, and Moldova. And a little bit of Romania, probably. But they were still a single entity uh, in terms of names, but consisted of many different cultures that probably included Sarmatians, Alans, which are both Aryan peoples, and the Goths, of course, but several others would be included as well. I need to tell you that the Goths are, at this time, they're referred to as Scythians by many ancient writers, especially Greek-speaking writers. So, but you may remember the term Scythians from earlier time periods as horse-bound, semi-nomadic people that populated the same area centuries earlier. Their current accessions of the Caucasus region are the direct descendants of the original Scythians. But we cannot reliably number the amount of people living in this region that we would call Scythia or the Pontic Steppe for our purposes. We do have some fairly reliable numbers for the provinces of Rome as they conducted censuses throughout the empire at various points. For example, Rome itself had a population of over a million people at this same time in the late second century. But unfortunately, there is no similar census among the Goths and the rest of the Cherniak of culture that we mentioned last week which is the culture that is dominant uh, in the region of the Pontic Steppe at this time. And the Chernyakov culture, and again, I'm giving this my best shot. If anybody knows better, let me know, is the predominant culture of the Pontic Steppe from the 2nd to the 5th century, which the Goths will be coming out of this culture in our story shortly. And the Chernyakov culture was very similar to the Vilbeck culture of modern-day Poland that we talked about last week. This is one of the reasons that some historians consider the second migration story that the Goths started in Poland themselves and then moved to Ukraine uh, as valid. But both cultures were primarily sedentary with cattle raising and farming present in both. Cattle raising played a large part historically in the Gothic culture and economy, but at the same time, they appear on the Pontic Steppe, farming and some craftsmanship become the dominant drivers in the economy. And trade becomes very important to our Goths at this time, and in particularly with the Romans. The proximity of the Roman provinces of Moesia Inferior, Moesia Superior, Pannonia, Thrace, and even the cities uh, of Greece position the Goths to develop profitable trade routes. And so the Cherniak of culture had a bit of a semi-nomadic touch to it as well, uh, which could be explained by the presence of many steppe nomads, such as the uh, Alans and the Sarmatians. And those Iranian peoples that we mentioned earlier were semi-nomadic as they came from a 
area that was much more steppe land than traditionally the Goths in the Europe side of the Pontic steppe. And the homes of these people were still not large cities, as we don't have any meaningful urban development for centuries. But they're small hamlet communities centered on farming. These farming communities would be spread out, but would trade and cooperate with each other when needed. And when they fought, it was typically on foot. Some archers would be involved and a small contingent of horse-mounted warriors. But they weren't the horse-mounted warriors of the Huns with the composite bows and, uh, excuse me, the compound bows. Composite would be much different. And they are going to be using lances and swords and maces still from horseback. But the typical goth warrior would have been on foot with javelins, spear, and or a sword that was based on the Roman spatha, which is uh, a little bit longer than the gladius, which is uh, probably the most famous sword for the Romans. It's about three feet long or so. And this idea of the bare-chested, wild-haired warrior is not exactly true either. They could have been wearing some armor at this time called lamellar armor, which is essentially just little metal plates made of bronze or iron that are tied together in rows. So not exactly chain mail, uh, but more plates that uh, I think are more uh, associated with samurai armor. To give you a bit of a visual, try and put something on the Facebook page to, to give you something else to look at. So as you can see, some of the stereotypes that we've kind of talked about a little bit already with the barbarians are going to be thrown out the window, uh, even at this early stage of our story. But the warrior status was certainly known at least well enough for other peoples around the world to take notice. And during the last phase of the migration uh, to the Pontic Steppe from the areas of modern-day Poland, the Goths had become allies of Rome sometime in the early 3rd century. So probably around 225 CE. The Romans did this with many groups of people just outside their empire. It was an easy way to pay other people who could potentially invade Rome to protect said Roman territory from still other people who could invade Roman territory. So at this time, the Romans were just about to enter a crazy time period in their history called the crisis of the third century. And it's going to help to have some secure borders. Now, the crisis of the third century began in the year 235 by the assassination of Severus Alexander by his own legions while protecting the Roman Empire from Germanic invasions in modern day Germany. Maximinus Thrax was a Thracian general who was then appointed by his own men, Emperor of Rome. Maximinus and other generals of Rome attempted to secure the border regions of the empire from the threats of the barbarian hordes on the edges. In Rome, the Senate appointed other men as co-emperors to the throne, which greatly complicated the situation for Maximinus. He decided in 238 to march his troops towards Rome to change the minds of these senators. A bit of a side here. The summation of the events causing the crisis of the 3rd century are an abridged version. I'm just trying to bring up the relevant points here to our story related to the Goths. If you're looking for more uh, in-depth telling of this part of the story, see the History of Rome podcast starting around episode 106 or so. Uh, they go into much greater detail and with uh, much more interest in the Roman side of this of this story. Okay, so now 
Back to the part that is important to our story. As Maximinius reaches Rome, he begins to besiege the city. Meanwhile, at the border regions, the barbarians are no longer able to be kept at bay as the troops left their posts to march towards Rome. The Goths, eyeing opportunity, now that these gates to Rome, Roman provinces are open, and probably they didn't get paid their yearly wages, as they were supposed to, to protect that border, attack the city of Histria south of the Danube River in modern-day Hungary. Rome is going through many trials, and there were places on the fringe of the empire that people saw as easy targets for plunder. So also, the Alemanni are attacking in modern-day Germany. Other areas of the empire are being attacked by other groups of people. But back at Rome, Maximinius's men realize that they are fighting Romans in Rome while barbarians are killing Romans where they should be. So they decide to assassinate their leader. And essentially, a kid named Gordian III ends up on the throne. In lieu of marching off and fighting the Goths, this led to an agreement where they would receive a yearly payment in order to keep peace once again. So in addition to peace, the Goths more than likely had to agree to fight under the Roman legions when called upon. This practice of employing barbarians through treaty and payments had been around for many years, even at this point in our story. So going back to the beginning of Rome, a version of federati or laity were practiced extensively. In the Republic time, the federati took the form of the Sochi, who were all non-Latin tribe members of the Italian peninsula. They fought the social war for more rights under Rome, which, again, if you go back to Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast, you can get way more information about this time period. But through that war, they were granted Roman citizenship, making all of Italy basically a part of Rome at this point. Uh, also, the famous battle of the Teutoburg Forest, where the Roman general Varus and his army uh, were surprised and slaughtered by the Roman-trained ally named Arminius. The auxilia of the Roman Principate period were pulled from non-citizens, um, many times from outside of areas Rome controlled, just on the fringes, and those auxilia would serve under Roman commands. Indeed, even after the initial allied relationship Rome has with the Goths, that does not always work, as we will see. They will continue with this practice time and time again until the fall of the empire. Now, the Romans paid yearly sums of coin to the Goths for the next decade. And after another new emperor, Philip the Arab, defeated the Carpi, a neighboring group of barbarians in the Carpathian Mountains of Romania today, the Romans saw this victory as a a way of securing a portion of the Danubian river frontier. And Philip suspended the payments to the Goths and tasked a general named Decius to handle any Gothic reaction to said suspension of payments. Now, Decius and his army then decided it would be a good idea to go ahead and not do that thing that Philip the Arab asked him to do and go ahead and move the army defending against the Goths to Italy to kill Philip and put Decius on the throne instead. Now, the two Roman armies met outside modern-day Verona, Italy, with Philip dying during the encounter. Decius then was recognized as the sole emperor by the Senate. But back up in Moesia, just south of the Danube, the Goths, pissed about their treatment and once again eyeing opportunity, 
invade Roman land south of the Danube River again. Decius should have been there, but had to go off and make himself emperor. So which is going to come back to doom him in the end? It is this next series of events that will make Roman history and put our friends, the Goths, on the map for all of history. So I think we should probably stop here, 248, early 250s. And we will pick up with Decius finally moving back to the Danube region as the new emperor of Rome. And he's going to have to try to put a stop to the Goths who are taking it to the Romans at this time in the area just south of the Danube. So the materials that we use for information this week's show include The Story of the Goths by Henry Bradley, The Goths by Peter Heather, Getica by Jordanus, the History of the Goths by Michael Kulikowski, and The History of the Goths by Herwig Wolfram. Please leave a review if you like the show. The good ones help other people find it. Subscribe if you are interested in following along on this journey with me. And this is the second show. So as we work to make this better, any suggestions, support, or critiques uh, you could throw at me, let me know on Twitter at History of the Barbarians or send an email to History of the Barbarians at Gmail. And I thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.